Father in heaven, thank you for your word that uh, is effective, that it does what it says, the way you called forth creation out of nothing and you called forth a people out of nothing, um, calling forth Abraham and Abram and his wife and created a people. Lord, that we are heirs to it even today by faith. Bless us this morning as we are studying this word and how you uh, have engaged with your people through the ages going all the way back to the time of Genesis. Send your spirit to be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at Genesis chapters 12 through 21. And uh, it's, we're getting into the story of Abraham. And it begins, of course, with God's call of Abraham. At that point, he's Abram. And I wanted to begin just with this kind of open-ended question. As God calls Abram, he's 75 years old. Out of a familiar, very familiar circumstances, both the place and the, the time things. Has God ever called you out of something really familiar into something or someplace, somewhere unfamiliar? Anybody care to, to share just, maybe it's not so, uh, you know, dramatic as what Abram, or maybe it was. But anybody had an experience like that that you're, you care to share? Just, yeah, Hans. I'm going to Germany um, back in 95. Uh-huh. Uh, took our whole choir out there. We were singing in congregations that had not had a whole lot of activity because sure. which was in East Germany. Right, yeah. And it's like these congregations had just reformed and their churches weren't heated and everything. Yeah. And it was just, oh, it's so wonderful that you come up. Yeah. Well, God called me. He told me I need to go, <laughs> go there. Very good. Cool. Other stories, other examples of, yeah, George. I think our, all of us, um, every day are being called. We're called here this morning. Yeah. And our whole life is based on it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the nature of, George is saying, like, our whole life is God calling us. And I think that that's um, certainly the case, that each and every day we're, we're kind of called anew into a life of following our Lord. I mean, he says to us each and every day, come follow me, as he called them. Others of you, mo- yeah, Matt. Um, uh, when I first started coming here, it was because um, uh, Ben just called me through. Yeah. God called me through Ben right. to start coming to church and thing that's ever happened. And here you are. Yeah. Now you're wearing matching plaid with Sam. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's popular now, I guess. But no, that, I mean, yeah, thank you. I, and I love your story, man. And so significant, too. If you guys didn't hear that, you know, Ben Stoops had, had been telling him, hey, you need to come to church. And he was in his own way kind of calling you out of your, your Ur of Chaldees, as, as Abram experienced, and into that, that life with the Lord. And praise God that you heard it and you hearkened to it. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah, go ahead, Megan. Oh. Um, yeah. This, mine is like when I came to Christ, and I think a lot of us feel that when you come to Christ, that's a whole absolutely world change. But um, I came to Christ through a mission organization, YWAM, and actually speaking of Abraham, hmm. I I didn't grow up in the church, and all these people around me, I mean, they're generations of family growing up in the church, and they're talking about singing Father Abraham. Yeah. And many sons. And me not growing up in the church, I'm like, I don't remember Abraham Lincoln having that many (laughs) (laughs) And John's heard this story. John grew up in the church. I didn't. And um, I remember calling my dad. I didn't know she didn't know. And I remember calling my dad because they were talking about intercessory prayer. And I'm like, Mm. listen, I need you to hear me. I need you to come get me because this sounds weird, kind of like, Christian Ouija board weird. I don't know what's happening right now. And he's like, I need you to just hang tight. It's going to get better. And so it did. But it was it was uncomfortable to be yeah. the, odd, the odd one standing out and to stay faithful to what God was calling me to. Absolutely. Well, and I've got more news for you, Megan. It only gets weirder. <laughs> I mean, the, the longer we live in our relationship with the Lord and in our discipleship, and especially in this day and age, Friends, we are weird, and you're only going to get weirder in, in our culture. But in the midst of that weirdness, God is calling us closer to himself. I love that you mentioned Father Abraham, and it fits very much with our, our, our text today and what we're talking about. And uh, Chad Burden, his podcast I had mentioned before about uh, 40 minutes in the Old Testament, he mentioned in looking at these chapters, we should sing not just that Father Abraham had many sons, but that he also had many sins. 
Um, if you've been following along, maybe that's one thing that stood out to you just over, throughout these chapters is like, wow, Abraham, I mean, man of faith, trusts God and does some super shady stuff, right? And it's not an either or. And this is part of what in theological parlance we talk about that we are simultaneously saint and sinner. And that's very much on display with Abraham where on the one hand, I mean, chapter 12, God calls him. He's like, this is great. He's like, okay, now there's a, there's a famine though. So you become a follower of, of the Lord. You trust in him. Doesn't mean that everything is just going to come up roses right away. Now there's a famine. Are you going to trust in me or not? Okay, he's going down to Egypt. And uh, imagine that conversation in the car on the way down there. Like, hey, Sarai, just so you know, um, I'm going to need you to pretend that you're my sister because I don't want to die. And you are so smoking hot at 65 years old, that I know that they're going to kill me to get to you. She's like, well, thank you for that compliment. But uh, I mean, this, is, this is how it happens. So Genesis 12, you get the call of Abram. And it's been pointed out by some commentators that here, this is the, bit, this is the second big break in the, in the book. I mean, or the first big break, I guess you'd say. book starts with Genesis 1, God calling all of creation out of nothing. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, with his word. Genesis 12 is this next big break that now it's narrowing in where he's calling not all of creation, but he's calling the creation of a new people who are going to be his chosen people. And uh, I, I had noted this in my email for chapter 11, um, just briefly to draw your attention to the end of chapter 11, we get just this little passing mention in verse 30 of chapter 11, now Sarai was barren, she had no child. What this means then is that God is once again going to have to create out of nothing, as it were. Now out of the, the barrenness of Sarai's womb, he's going to call forth a whole new people. He's going to promise to Abram that in you and through you, through your offspring, through your seed, all nations, all families of the earth will be blessed. And Abram's thinking, well, about that, Lord, we've just got one little problem. Well, maybe two. I'm 75 years old and my wife is barren. Like, what hope do we possibly have? But it just goes to show this is how God operates. He works out of nothing. Briefly, then, let's just walk through these, these chapters. Genesis chapters 12 and 21. And then I want to do a deep dive on one section in particular from chapter 17. Then we'll open it up to your questions and reflections from anywhere in this section. So chapter 12, as I mentioned, the call of Abram. And then they go down to Egypt. This kind of anticipates or foreshadows in a way what's going to happen to um, God's people later. They're going to go down to Egypt, right, and, and go into slavery. Um, and then in spite of, uh, you know, Abram's missteps, how he treats his wife Sarah and what happens there, God is merciful. He afflicts Pharaoh, gets them out. Chapter 13, then, you have Abram and Lot are separating. So Lot is Abram's nephew. is coming along with him. And here you get to see the side of Abram being faithful. Because here he doesn't trust in just earthly security. They come up and they see this land that God has promised. And Lot's like, all right, I got dibs on the nice part. <laughs> I want the best part. And Abram just credit. He says, okay, yeah, go ahead and take it. Because he trusts in God to provide for him. So there we get to see that, that flip side of him. Chapter 14 then is a very mysterious chapter. Some commentators say this is maybe the most mysterious chapter in the whole Bible. Because first of all, we hear all this story of Abram. Now he's got these soldiers and he's fighting to um, rescue his nephew Lot to bring him back. And it's like, what is going on here? Where did all these kings come from? But then you have this especially mysterious king, Melchizedek, who shows up almost nowhere else in the Bible, except in a really significant passage, the book of Hebrews, that we looked at at length uh, last year when we, when we studied that book. Um, the king of righteousness, what his name literally means. This mysterious uh, king, Melchizedek, who comes and gives to Abram bread and wine and blesses him. Then in chapter 15, first thing we hear actually Abram speak is that you know, we get his first spoken words to the Lord, and he's terrified. God says to him, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram's like, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. He's thinking, you've made these great promises to me, but I'm not seeing it come to pass. It's not happening. And this is where God makes this covenant or cuts the covenant. And I want to take just a moment to describe this again. I've, I've preached on this before, but um, just to bring it back to our, our remembrance. So I, I mentioned last week how uh, in the Hebrew parlance, you don't make a covenant, you cut a covenant. 
Because the way that it would be established is by taking some animals and you would cut them in half, okay, saw them in half. And you'd set them out down the aisleway here. You'd make like an aisleway with dead animals, okay? And they're, they're cut in half. And then you would walk through, you'd walk down the aisle, kind of a weird deranged wedding ceremony, all right? Here we are, surrounded by all these dead cut in half animals. And the oath that would be taken is this. May it happen, may it so happen to me if I break the terms of this covenant. So it's like, as you see this blood on the ground, these you know, cut up animals saying, this is what, may this happen to me if I don't keep the terms of this covenant. It's a very serious thing. It's that weighty thing. Now, why is that especially interesting here with respect to God's covenant, the one that he's cutting with Abram here? Well, notice this. So um, God takes Abram out, shows him the stars. So shall your, your offspring be. I'm going to number them. You're not going to be able to number them. Then verse 12 of chapter 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And, beho- and the same phrase that's used for uh, Adam in chapter 2. That's that same deep sleep, which tells us, okay, something's afoot. God's, God's up to something. A deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, who is conked out, right? And yet God's speaking over him. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. Okay, anticipating again slavery. And he continues on. But then verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So what's significant there is when you see that smoke, that pillar of of cloud as it were, this is is that kind of, uh, in a way, quasi-incarnate presence of God, right? So the way that he reveals himself um, throughout in Genesis and Exodus as he's leading the Israelites in that pillar of cloud, in that smoke. So this is like, this is God's presence, okay? It passes between the pieces. And then it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. So you read that, and in particular, for an ancient Near Eastern reader of this, hearing this story, they're going to say, well, wait a second, something's missing. And what's missing there? Abram, he doesn't, he doesn't walk the aisle. Abram's passed out of sleep. God does it single-handedly. And what that's conveying is it's showing us God is the one who is taking onto himself both the promises and the repercussions of this covenant. And here we have kind of an echo of, so last week or two weeks ago when we talked about the bow, the, the rainbow, God sets his bow in the clouds, and which way is that bow facing, pointing? It's pointing up to heaven, right? That once again, the, this covenant is broken. God himself is going to take on the, the pain, the sorrow, the suffering, the heartbreak that comes as a result of that broken covenant. Humanity isn't going to receive it, but he's going to take it on to himself. And so we see with this covenant that God makes with Abram and thus with all of Abram's seed, it's a one-sided, single-handed covenant. It's, we would say it's a grace. It's grace, right? This is God's grace at work. So it's a powerful moment, really significant moment. And with that, verse 6 then becomes kind of the, um, one of Paul's keystone verses when he's talking about what it means to be saved by faith in the New Testament. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God reckoned his righteousness to him. This is what we call imputation, where he's like, Abram, I see you in all your sinful, sordid self, and yet I am reckoning, I'm accounting my righteousness to you. I'm clothing you in my righteousness because of your faith, simply because you trusted me. You've got those empty hands that are going to receive from me what I have to give. All right, so chapter 15, really significant. Chapter 16 I mean, all right, they've got faith. This is great. Chapter 16, Sarah's like, you know what? This is taking too long. Maybe I've got, a, I've got plan B, all right? We've got a servant girl, um, Hagar, and maybe, you know, we can, God didn't say the prom, that the, who the baby had to come from, so maybe we can just have it through Hagar, the servant girl, the Egyptian servant girl. And isn't this interesting, too? Here we see the Israelites have an Egyptian as a servant who then gets mistreated. And lo and behold, what's going to happen a few years hence? The Israelites are going to be the one in servitude 
mistreated by the Egyptians. In fact, the same verb is used to describe that mistreatment that's used by, in Exodus uh, chapter 1, I think it is, 1 or 2, of uh, how the Egyptians mistreat the Israelites later. So just kind of can put a pin in that. But they want, they're impatient. They got to take things into their own hands and say, you know what? Yeah, we've got, a, we've got an idea. Let's have a separate child. And thus you have Ishmael. Uh, chapter 17 then, God reaffirms his promise. He's like, no, it's going to be through Sarai. And he, give, he kind of magnifies that covenant promise then with circumcision. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. In particular, his connection with baptism. Chapter 18, you've got the mysterious visitors who show up. So is this the Lord and a couple of angels? Is this like a figure of the Trinity? Is this just three dudes? It's clearly more than just three dudes. But what all's going on there? They visit, and here it's like, especially for Sarai's sake, for her benefit, to hear that promise. And what Sarai's, or as she becomes Sarah, what's Sarah's reaction when she hears this message? Yeah, she, she chortles. She laughs. She's like, it's ridiculous. How could this be? God always gets the last laugh. Um, and then you have Abram interceding for the sake of Sodom when he catches wind that things are not going to end well for them. And indeed, in chapter 19, we see the, the sorry ending of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God preserves Lot, preserves Abram as well, makes that promise. Then also you get the weird story with Lot and his daughters. You get some more incest. <sighs> I mean, this is our, like our second weird incestuous story, and we're only 19 chapters into Genesis. I mean, it's like, okay, these are sinners, clearly, clearly. Chapter 20, Abram attempts to, forgive the language, pimp out his wife once again in order to save his own skin. There's no other way to put it, guys. Like, seriously, what are you doing, Abram? This is so bad. Like, Sarah, and then he even tries to cover it up. We learn that actually... Like, Sarai is technically my half-sister, so I wasn't totally lying when I said that she was my sister. But then Abimelech, bless him, he's like, okay, all right, fine, take her back. And he also, you know, gives him all these other gifts as well. And then finally, the last chapter for this week, chapter 21, the birth of Isaac, that long-awaited promise. How long did it take from when God first promised to when he was born? 25 years. 25 years. 25 years. So... God works slowly. Um, all right. So that's an overview of those chapters. And we'll, we'll circle back in a moment for your questions from any of those sections. I'll do my best to, um, to reflect on that. But I want to talk some more about circumcision. And Christians, we don't talk about this a whole lot. It makes us uncomfortable for understandable reasons, especially guys. Um, but uh, it's important. It's super significant, not only in the Old Testament, but then carrying forward into the New Testament um, in part because it becomes a sticking point for the proclamation of the gospel. So um, in, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, there was this issue in the, the churches of Galatia where he had gone out and proclaimed this good news of God's free gift given in Jesus. And there were other um, Jewish Christians who came in afterwards and said, that's great, God's done all this through Jesus, Jesus is awesome, you just also need to make sure that you're circumcised and follow all the laws of Moses. And you want to get Paul's hackles up. That really gets him riled up. So circumcision becomes a flashpoint come New Testament time. And a, 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 as they say, a sticking point and, a, and an issue. But at this point, back in the Old Testament, God gives to it, in many respects, as a gift of his grace. As a further sign and seal of his promise, of his covenant promise given to Abraham that though it looks like you're not going to be able to have any kids, let me show you that you are. And without getting too, you know, like personal and weird here, there's a, there's a reason why God institutes circumcision and has that happen at the place that it does happen, considering the promise that he's given. You with me here? Like he's saying, listen, um, the power is not going to come from you. The power is going to come from me. See? And just in case there's any wondering, let me um, <laughs> give you this, this gift. It's going to be painful for a moment, but ultimately it's going to, to prove good for you. So um, how does this then, this gift of circumcision, because Paul makes this connection between circumcision and baptism in the New Testament. So I want to do a little comparing and contrasting with these two and how it can shed light on the significance of baptism um, and also how it differs from circumcision. So first of all, already in the Old Testament, it was recognized that 
circumcision, while it was a, a gift from God, it was not the whole thing, and that it was meant to signify and point towards something even more profound. So in Deuteronomy 30, it says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So the promise is that your heart, your inner being, and not just the external, is going to have this circumcision, this sign of devotion, fully, full devotion to the Lord. Then in Romans 4, um, Paul makes this further connection. He says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. This is part of Paul's argument why circumcision is not necessary, it's not mandatory for children of the new covenant, for those who by faith are, are trusting in the Lord. Well, he's going to take this one step further in his letter to the Colossians, Colossians 2, where he's going to make this explicit connection then to baptism. He says, In him, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. All right, so Paul explicitly makes this connection between circumcision and baptism. And so it invites this kind of comparing and contrasting. So if you flip over your, your hand out there, uh, I wanted to spell out some of these, these points of similarity and of difference because I think it's illuminating for us when we think about what is God up to in baptism. All right, so this is not exhaustive, but it gives us an idea of, of what's going on here. First of all, it bears mentioning that Jesus is both circumcised and baptized. He is at the, this center point, the nexus of all history, of course. His coming is. And so in this way, he both bears in his body the marks of the old covenant, right? He is fulfilling the law on our behalf. This is so significant in his ministry, despite what his opponents are often saying, that you've come and you are overturning, you're abolishing the law. But Jesus says, no, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Him being circumcised is another step of him fulfilling the law. But not only so, he's also baptized. And this baptism is in many respects kind of the, the launching of his ministry. That as he stands in the place of sinners at the Jordan River, so he will stand in our place on the cross also. So it, it bears mentioning there that Jesus is both circumcised and baptized. Let's think secondly then about the duration. Okay, How long does this last for, in other words? How long, how long does it last for? Well, perhaps it goes without saying, but circumcision only needs to be performed one time. Right? <laughs> Indeed, it only should be performed one time. Uh, it had that sense of permanence to it. And likewise, when it comes to baptism. Okay? So while baptism doesn't bear the same kind of external marks that circumcision does to show that it's just a one and done, uh, the scriptures make clear that you don't need to be baptized over and over again. You don't need to be baptized multiple times. Uh, sometimes people will do this, and I understand why it is. It comes from a desire to, um, perhaps, for instance, somebody is baptized as an infant, and you know, maybe they walk away from, from the Lord, or maybe they just get to a point where you know, they want to take their faith really seriously and mark that moment where they're, they're going forward. And they say, well, I'm going to be baptized again. I'm going to be re-baptized. <clears throat> I understand that impulse. Biblically speaking, though, it's not necessary to be baptized again. And why is that? It's because baptism is not our work. It's God's work. It's something that he's doing for us rather than us doing for him. So while there is an element of that baptism, especially baptism of, of adults, where it's kind of making that profession of faith and showing, you know, I mean, I'm in business here, right? It's all well and good. But uh, even then, Baptism is God's work, him working through the water and the word in order to make a, a child. So if somebody strays from their baptism, do they need to be rebaptized? No, they need to return to their baptism and say, yeah, remember the fact that they've already been claimed in baptism. They've already been made a, a child of God. All right, so you've got that duration thing. Second thing, the timing of it. This is really significant. When was somebody circumcised? When was someone to be circumcised? On the eighth day. All right. Why the eighth day? 
Now, I can't remember if we talked about this or not, but go back to the creation account. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. In the first few verses, where it's the culmination of creation and the Sabbath. All right, so all throughout the first six days, it, you have this, this rhythm where it says, and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day, or the sixth day, right? The fifth day, the fourth day, and all of those. Uh, what? I just, okay. Um, then, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, in chapter 2, verse 1, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. What you don't hear on that seventh day is the evening and the morning, that final refrain. And so already for Jewish interpreters from ancient times, there was this understanding that the Sabbath was open-ended. It didn't have this, this conclusion the way that the other days did. And the reason being, theologically speaking, is because Christ himself, he rests in the tomb on the Sabbath day, and then he is raised on Sunday, which is, theologically speaking, the eighth day. The eighth day becomes um, significant in terms of, and already going back to creation, as this symbol of new creation, of new life. Okay? So someone who's circumcised on the eighth day means they're part of God's new creation work that he's doing and what he, he's bringing about. And then ultimately that is culminated in and fulfills, is fulfilled in um, Christ Jesus and him being raised on the eighth day. That's the significance then of, of uh, circumcision on the eighth day. You're part of this new covenant, this new creation, right? Now, that's part of the reason, it's not the whole reason, but that's part of the reason why when it comes to baptism, and people will ask, well, wait a second. So as Lutherans, we baptize infants, right? So how could you, how could you baptize infants? Don't you have to be of a certain age in order to recognize it? Well, one of the reasons that we can say we baptize as infants is precisely this connection back to circumcision. Was an eight-day-old infant, you know, under the old covenant, did he realize what was happening? Was he able to say, wait a second, wait a second, I'm not so sure I want to go through this circumcision thing. I say, oh, it doesn't matter. Because it's God's work, it's not, it's not your work. And so even if you can't fully realize it. Now, as they get older, are they going to need to understand it and claim that faith for themselves? Sure, yes. But already God is making a child. So similarly, we'd say we baptize babies because God desires them to be in a relationship with himself. And using this analogy of circumcision, it makes sense that someone be baptized on the eighth day. Also along these lines, if you see our baptismal font back there. We have it in, uh, near the entrance as we come in. And perhaps you've noticed this before. What shape is the baptismal font in? It's, it's an octagon, which has how many sides? Eight sides. The octagon has eight sides. You're like, wait a second. Stop sign. Okay, yeah. Eight sides. Um, and that's hearkening back to that eighth day. Because when we're baptized, whether or not you happen to be baptized on the eighth day, you are brought into that eternal eighth day of the new creation in and with Christ. Now, one more kind of cool, actually two cool uh, architectural things about our sanctuary in particular and our kind of liturgical furniture. So we've got the baptismal font that's eight-sided. If you look at the pulpit, which you can't do right now, but when we go back in there and you look at the pulpit, even though it's um, kind of interrupted by the corner of the wall, you can tell it's also an octagon. It's the same kind of shape as the baptismal font is, tying preaching then to, to baptism because in the proclamation of the word we're continuing to return to and have renewed that message of, of the forgiveness of sins that we receive in baptism but wait there's more because our pulpit also not only has those eight sides like the font but it's also shaped like a chalice it's shaped like a chalice tying it to the altar and the lord's supper and so there's this sense that all these gifts of god are tied together they're, they're all we call them means of grace that through Holy Communion, Holy Baptism, the preaching of the word, God is bestowing his grace and favor upon us. Now, not every church is going to have all those cool architectural things, but that's, that's why you come here, because we're the best church, obviously. Uh, 
I, I have some godly pride over uh, you know, our furnishings here. It's really cool. And the people who thought through that, I mean, it just blows your mind, just the thoughtfulness of these you know, artists, these godly liturgical artists that, that brought all those things together. Um, incidentally, it, it was more apparent, especially the pulpit, it, it's chalice when, as it used to be, like three feet higher, right? And some of you have seen those pictures. And then at some point, they needed to bring the preacher down to size, I guess. I don't, it's still pretty high up there, though. But let me pause there. Thoughts or questions about the eighth day? Okay, to make sure we've got some time for other questions about Genesis, let me just briefly go through these other ones. Oh, okay, sorry. Go ahead, Hans. Circumcision cutting yes. is just like the Abraham's uh, covenant. That yes. It's cutting yep. again. They're still there. cutting. Yep. And baptism is the same way. It cuts to the heart. It, ooh, well put. Okay, so there's that cutting in the circumcision that calls back to the, the cutting that happened at the covenant. And then also now in holy baptism, and you might tie in here too the language in the New Testament of, of you know um, dying to the old man, the old Adam, the old Eve, that there's a death. There is a cutting that happens there. It cuts to the heart, as you say. All right, briefly, just a a few of the more differences, distinctions between circumcision and baptism. Circumcision, Paul uses this language, it's a sign and seal, okay? So, and that goes along with the next one too. It's more external. Whereas baptism, we say this isn't merely a sign and seal. It is that, but even more so, it's a sacrament. It's God's holy oath and promise. It's actually doing something. It's effective so that when um, God speaks his name, when it's the water and the word, it's not just um, pointing to something else, but God is actually making a child of God. He's actually bestowing the forgiveness of sins. It's not merely symbolic. It's symbolic plus, right? That's what we mean by being sacramental. It's that powerful work to it. So I, I alluded to this, the external side of circumcision. And with baptism, it's an external gift. Part of the power of it, because you have that, that objective side with the water, but it's also internal because it's transforming the heart as well. It's significant that in terms of the eligibility of it, of course, circumcision was just for males and specifically just for Israelite males. But now baptism comes and Jesus you know, institutes it with his great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, men, women, children, of all peoples, Jew, Gentile, Everyone now is eligible for this, this gift of God. So there's this, this broadening out, this extension, this democratizing, if you will, of that covenant. And then finally, what are the benefits? Well, in circumcision, it was inclusion in that covenant people of God, which was, was not insignificant. But now in baptism, it's been ramped up because we are joined and united to Christ Jesus. And in him, we receive the forgiveness of sins life, and salvation. So all of that gets ramped up. And this is typical. The movement from Old to New Testament is there will be type and anti-type, foreshadowing and fulfillment, and there's always an escalation, right? It's always, uh, it's going up. God doesn't become less, he doesn't become more miserly in his grace as he goes from old to new, but he ramps it up. He's like, it's even better than you thought. All right, thoughts or reflections on circumcision, baptism, the two today. Yeah, Becky. Yep. Did people have a basis for that? Good. What's he doing? What is this? Good question. So Becky's asking, okay, so there was, there was a, um, a precursor for circumcision, kind of a cultural touch point. Evidently, other, um, other cultures would even do things like circumcision too. What about for baptism? Well, indeed, there was. Even among Jews, there would be ritual baths and ritual washings. They had the, the, not only the bath where when they would come into um, the temple courts to worship, the, uh, I think it was called the mitzvah, um, where they, there was that sense of you're coming in to, to clean yourself, but also it was not uncommon for those who were making the sense more of the way that the baptism is often understood um, these days by, by some Protestant Christians where it was this um, uh, just a ritual washing and showing a, a break with the old life and a starting with the, with the new. And so there was a, a touch point for it, and with that baptism of, of John, but the baptism that Jesus institutes then is taking it to the next level. This isn't just me showing a break with the old and, and I'm, I'm starting a new life here. It's not just a baptism for repentance, right? But here we're getting a baptism where we actually have the bestowal of the Holy Spirit and the, uh, the creation of a new life. So, yeah, good question. Yeah, Kim. 
listened to different um, discussion on this, but I'm curious yours. Um, the, the connection or the tie from baptism to salvation, is it required? Oh, good. So um, Kim's asking, is baptism required for salvation? And the way that I like to answer this is to say, is to kind of reframe it a little bit. So if somebody's asking, um, so let me put it this way. If you're next to a thief on a cross and he you know, says, today, I, can I be with you in paradise? And Jesus doesn't say to him, well, I wish you could be, but you can't be baptized first. And so, no. Um, he says, yeah, oh yeah, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus's word is effectual. His promise does what it needs to do. So, you know, somebody, uh, to use a, uh, like a modern example, somebody who hadn't been baptized and, you know, they um, are on their deathbed and, you know, they uh, hear, hear the word, they profess faith in Christ, can and will they still be saved? Say, so, yes, absolutely. And so in that respect, baptism is not um, necessary or mandatory for salvation. But we want to look at it not through the lens of the law, which is when we have the the, the thought of requirement as looking at it through um, a law lens. Like, is this something we have to do? But if we look at it through a gospel grace lens of a, of a gift of God, it's like, no, this is something that God has instituted as a way of taking, making, making us his own, right? Where then I would say, if somebody says, no, I don't want to be baptized. I, I, don't, I don't need it. I would say, in that case, I would say, yeah, you should. Why, why do you not want to be? Why would you refuse or scorn this gift. It's a different kind of conversation, right? Because here is God saying, I'm going to take, I mean, just the fact that he uses water, right? That he uses water, the most abundant resource on earth. God is conveying how much he wants, how far he wants his grace to spread, how deeply he wants all people to be able to, to come to that relationship with him. It'd be different if he was like, okay, and I want all nations to be saved, and here's how you become one of my children. You need Eye of Newt, which you can only get at the top of, you know, in Tibet. Up, you have to climb up Mount Everest. Like, it's, okay, so this is a very rarefied sort of thing. But instead, God's like, do you have water? Yeah, we, we've got water. Okay, cool. Here's my word, and it's my name, and just baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then you're mine. Ha, ha, ha. So great does God desire to all, for all people to, to come to know him. So does that help? Yeah, so anytime, if it's framed in that sense of requirement, say, ah, yes and no. I mean, Jesus does say, you know, um, he who, is, who believes and is baptized will be saved, but then he says, who do, whoever does not believe will be condemned. He doesn't say whoever will not, who's not baptized. So that's kind of answer. Yeah, Hans? Is, was he referring to his baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, or was it John's baptism? When he says whoever believes and is baptized? Yeah. yeah, I would say he's referring to his baptism. Yeah, for sure. Good. Okay. Other questions then about Genesis and about these chapters, the story of Abraham, things that have come up as you've been reading or if you've read this in the past and you're wondering about things in here. Um, let's just open, open the floor for, for discussion. What's caught your attention over the, over the, through the reading? Yeah, Esther, go ahead. Well, you, you know, Yes. Right. And Abraham also walked with God. Right. And Abraham also walked with God. Yeah. So what is, what is the, the modern day lesson for us with this? What it means to walk with God like they did. Yeah. And, and walk before the Lord as Abraham did. What do you mean by the walking before the Lord? Well, one of the, I, I don't know where it is, but he said he walked before the Lord. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, um, good. So, the, the Hebrew word for, for before there, I think it's lifne, that it can mean both in this before in the sense of getting out ahead of, or it can mean before as in in the presence of, before him. And so, they're very much of, of a, a, a like meaning to say, you know, to walk after the Lord or to walk before him. It means to walk in his presence. And you ask, what does that mean for us today? I think it's to live in, in the light of his presence each and every day. Um, so as I mentioned in the sermon, as we talked about already here in Bible study, as, as George touched on, each and every day, it's this um, dying and rising again of awakening anew, repenting of sins, and following Christ once again. And this is what, in the catechism, tied into the baptism there, Luther calls this that daily dying and rising. 
That each and every day we wake up, we return to our baptism. This is part of the significance in the catechism where he says, you know, make the sign of the Holy Cross. First thing you do when you wake up, make the sign of the cross. Remember who and whose you are and that you are walking before the Lord. That Hopefully you're not getting out ahead of him <laughs> because we're always walking after him in that respect, but that we're going in his presence. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, Kim. I find the Hagar. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah. But one of the things my husband and I were talking about this week was, so there's so much there, but this was one question that we both felt like we couldn't yeah. come to the answer to, so I'm just curious. Why, if God knew Ishmael would be the father of Islam, would he bless him yeah. and multiply his offspring? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is... Uh, good. So Kim's asking, okay, if God knows... God knows what, so, and, and maybe you're not all familiar with this, but what happens is you have this, um, this bastard son of, of Abraham, Abram, Ishmael. Ish, God also blesses Ishmael. So even though Abram and Sarai, they kind of like, they're, they're done with him, whatever. You get a sense that Abram still cares about Ishmael. Sarai is like, I, you know, I don't really want to have anything to do with him. Uh, but God still blesses him. It says, you're going to be a father of princes. And we see later, I think it's in chapter 25, that, yeah, he becomes the father of this, these 12 princes. And this goes on to be the, the forefather of the, the Arab nations and ultimately of Islam. So that um, still to this day, Muslims refer back to Abraham as their forefather, but not through the line of Isaac, the line of promise, but instead through Ishmael. So also sometimes you'll hear of Abrahamic religions, meaning... Judaism, Christianity, both of those claiming lineage through Isaac, but then also Islam through Ishmael. And why would God bless him? And why would, why would he allow that, knowing how it was going to be? It's, wow, that's a good question. And it's, it's not unlike, I mean, some of these other questions that we've wrestled with, like, why would God do this? Why would he create mankind knowing how they're going to turn from him? And I, I, my thought can just go back to his desire ultimately that Ishmael and that his followers after him would also be in covenant relationship with him. Uh, well, I've got a couple other thoughts, but I see some hands. You want, Megan, you want to speak to it too? Well, you mentioned the covenant that God cuts a covenant with Abraham. So I think God's also, even though Sarah and Abraham are getting, they're going out of line, God still fulfills his promise. I don't know if that would tie into that. Well, it, it does in the sense that he does still fulfill his promise. And that even though... Um, Ishmael is going to be this, this aberrant line. It goes back even further to chapter 12 and God's saying, I desire all families of the earth to be blessed. And I kind of touched on this with the table of nations in Genesis 10 last week, how like God's the father of all nations. He's going to have his chosen people. And this is going to be the line through whom the seed, the offspring, Christ Jesus will ultimately come. But he still desires them all to be saved. Well, Jeff, did you have a thought too? It's a lot where you were heading with that. Yeah. Where, like, we both had common footing. And so, and, and the same father, we can't like look down on other people right. that way. Right. Like we have to look at trying to get them to believe. Yeah. And, and, and God and Jesus more than anything. Yes. And it, it gives you a point to like conversate with somebody or start <coughs> planting the seed to... For sure. To get, that, to get them towards baptism. And sure, baptism, yeah, for sure. Where if you didn't have that same father way thousands of years ago, it would be even harder. We have less common ground and touch point. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're not running into a lot of Muslims in northern Michigan, obviously. Um, but there's parts of Michigan that very much you do. One, one other thought along these lines, though, that I found really interesting in our Augsburg Confession, which is kind of our, our core Lutheran confession of faith, first article of the Augsburg Confession is about God and God as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it, say, it says, and this is typical with each of these, it'll say, here's what we believe and here's what we, here's what we reject. Okay, false teachings about this. And it mentions some of those heresies that we talked about um, through our heresy Bible study. Among those that it mentions is Islam. It says specifically Mohammedans. That was kind of the, the medieval term for it. But it regards Islam not merely as like a, a totally different religion, but as a, a heretical offshoot of Christianity. 
Now you say, well, it seems like six and one half dozen either way. But to me, it speaks back to God's ultimate desire and recognition that, okay, they have some understanding that there is one God. It's a, a false understanding. They misunderstand who that God is because they don't know him through Jesus. But that too, I think is a touchstone, a touch point for us to say, hey, you are wayward children whom God desires to come back to you. But I don't know, Kim, it's a, it's a tough question. Like, I don't know. Okay, Lane, yeah, go ahead. I've always looked at it as just human beings need contrast. Hmm. And God has to create that contrast. Kind of like if you feel like you're, you know, like we all a victim of it. Like, oh, gosh, I just, I just don't doubt it. God, it's so rough. And yeah. you go and you help somebody that's way worse off than you. Right. And you're like, oh, I'm so blessed. Yes. And so it's a way to make us realize that it's that way. Because why would he let the devil even be around? You've hmm. got to have that contrast or else you don't, you don't appreciate yeah, that's interesting. That's the way I've always looked. Yeah, at it. through having those having those opposites, it magnifies. Well, that's the yeah, because that's what brings you hmm. to the realization of. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, Nina. I kind of agree with him in a way because my granddaughter, when she was about eleven or twelve, she didn't believe in God. She just, you know, and I explained as best I could. I said the only religion in the world right now that works on grace yeah. rather than you got to do this right. and you got to do that yes. and, you know, and you know that stuck. Yeah. She became a Christian. No kidding. Well, there you go. You know, so like you said, well, it's that contrast, world, contrast. You know, I compare it. Yeah, by that, through, that, through that contrast, you're able you to see it. contrast. You've yeah. got Muslims that are over there, you know, killing babies and innocent people and yet somehow it's getting spun like they're the victims. No, I mean, it's, you're able. The, you the difference could not be that. more stark. Yeah, yes. You, you, right. You have yeah. to go through that contrast. Is to, well, no. This is why. This is the We need life. I've already showed you why. It's right. Not the way. Anyway. Yeah. Good. All right. A couple other thoughts. Go ahead, Pat. Well, just along the, the lines of the story of Hagar. Yeah. Just think of Abraham. Like he wanted a son so bad. Right. He had to be attached to Ishmael. Oh yeah. Right. And then Sarah has her fifth. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Abraham is very wealthy. Right. Oh well. That's putting the best construction on it, Pat. That's very sweet. I mean, no, it re- you really get the impression, like, by all accounts, she's being sent out to die. Not unlike, and this is really significant theologically. Think back to our study of Leviticus. What does she look like in that moment? She looks like a scapegoat. She looks like a scapegoat. Remember the scapegoat, the one who's sent away into the wilderness. You're the one who's taking my punishment on on myself. And this is obviously before the institution of that in Leviticus. But it's almost, again, a foreshadowing of like, I'm sending out my scapegoat. You're the one that I don't want to have anything to do with. And people still do this today. All right. A couple more thoughts, Jim, and then Matt. Uh, Reference uh, Genesis 18, uh, the story of Sodom. Yeah. And Gosh. clearly God has made his opinion very clear <laughs> to Abram yeah. that he was going to destroy both cities completely yeah. because it was such an importance to him. Right. What do you think may have prompted Abram to plead for them yeah. as opposed to going with God's will and just fry them all? Right. Yeah. It's a, become a great humanitarian. Yeah, I know. It's a great question. So Jim's asking, like, God clearly has, he's, he's intent on raising Sodom and Gomorrah to the ground. Why does Abraham suddenly become this great humanitarian and he's going to step in and plead on their behalf? We get the impression that he has some, he's got some kind of sentimental tie to it, some connection. It's not clear what it is. But to me, this is where I, I think it's maybe the clearest picture, along with chapter 22, which we'll read this week, of just a Christ type in Abraham, of he, seeing the wickedness of these people, and it is apparent, Abraham pleads on their behalf. 
And I think here there's very much, we see Christ Jesus. What does he do? But he's on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Um, In that way, Abraham's pointing forward to what Christ does. And then it's the privilege of us as believers to intercede, not just for our friends, not just for our fellow believers, but for our enemies and for those who we think are far from the kingdom. Okay, Matt had his hand up, then I'll, I'll get uh, Jake, and we're running short on time, but I want to make sure you... So, um, uh, back to how Muslims are misled. Well, hold, hold that thought. I, I wanna, if we had anybody else that wanted to speak to that, I do want to... Jake, did you have something to say off of that? I was going to say that I think Lot is the one who settled Yeah. So Abraham kind of had a... So he had that, yeah, exactly. So he had that connection through Lot. Right. And so, and he cares about Lot, obviously, and so he's protecting him. So, yes, yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, in school, we had to briefly cover over Muslim empires, and it, we talked a little bit about how they believed that Muhammad was enlightened by God, and I think that that was simply just maybe Muhammad was misleading people into believing false words in order to follow him for his own strength and believing, but... Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's to that point of the contrast, the way that those that Islam spread and through those Muslim kingdoms, it was not the way that the gospel spreads, right? I mean, it's said that the seed of the... Go- the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's people laying down their own lives for the, for the sake of the faith, whereas Islam spread through shedding the blood of, of others, which couldn't be a starker contrast once again. Yeah. All right, we've kind of gone over time. I want to leave you with this parting thought. God repeats his promise in varying ways with different magnifications, no less than, let's see, one, two, three, four, five times just through these chapters that we read here. In Genesis 12, when he first states it, in chapter 13, he reiterates it. Chapter 15, of course, with that covenant, where now, and he's showing him the stars. And then chapter 17, gives him the gift of circumcision. And then finally, he sends the, um, he, he comes present, and along with these, these angels, he's doing all of these different ways, reiterating, I mean, this is again, one of those McFly moments, right? With Abram, where he's like, Hello, McFly, hello, McFly, where he's like, I'm going to get through to you in your thick head however I have to. And this is just the way of our God, of how he is constantly coming at us and in so many different ways, through water and the word and baptism, like we talked about, through the Lord's Supper and um, bread and wine, through you know, the church and the steeple and all of these people in all of these many and various ways. God continues to come after you and me to make sure that we don't miss his promise and his presence. He's with us always. So I hope that as we're reading through Genesis, we see not only these signs of how sinful people can be, but also and even more so how good and faithful God is because that's really the big takeaway through here. So next week, we'll continue through Genesis. Um, Matt Emery is going to be teaching this study. I get to do confirmation next week. So you can look forward to that and that conversation. So until then, have a great week and go Lions. Go Lions.